RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. I recorded this interview with Michael Wolfe 11 years ago. But what is clear is his approach and understanding of the world of branding is very much about the mind state of his clients, always the CEOs. Michael is a design thinker who needs to understand what makes these leaders tick. When working on projects, he carefully selects creative collaborators, with him acting as a conductor, orchestrating the concept to its final solution. Now at 90, he is as interested in our ever-changing world with the enthusiasm of a 20-something. So sit back and enjoy Michael's RDI Insights. It's well worth it. My guest today is a man who has helped shape the world of branding. By that I don't mean simply designing a logo or stationary range, but corporate identity at its most thorough. It is about the total personality of an organisation, what it does, how it behaves, and communicates to its customers and various audiences in all its manifestations. His name is Michael Wolfe, who, along with Wally Olins, founded the design consultancy Wolfe Olins in 1965. But Wolfe left that company almost three decades ago to pursue his own unique take on the world of design through advising companies, government bodies, and giving inspirational talks around the world. Wolfe has a view on the use and effectiveness of design in this 21st century. Join me now to hear that view. I spoke to him at his home in London's Islington. Let's start by explaining to listeners what branding is, um, because uh, there's always confusion about what it is, and it's used by government now and on the radio and so forth, and everyone seems to be a brand. People are a brand. So what's your take on branding? Well, I'll tell you a little story, but before I do, I want to give you a quotation by Maya Angelou, which I think in a way sums it up. And she said, people will forget what you say, people will forget what you do, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And in a way, that is the essence of of branding, because although it started with being burning a mark in a cow's behind, so that if the car was stolen, you could claim it back, it was my cow, that was how it started, that's why it's called branding, it then sort of morphed into, well, I made this, so I'll, rather like branding a cow's bum, I'll put my badge on the front of the car that I made, because I'm Henry Ford, and all my cars are going to be called Fords. And I made these razor blades, they're all going to be called Gillettes. And I designed this dress, and they're all going to be called Dior. And, of course, it started to change because these people died, and uh, um, what they made changed. And, you know, the designers who stood on their shoulders and moved it forward were either better than them or more likely not as good as them, not as charismatic. And business started to emasculate talent, which it, it often does. And then I think what happened was it moved into a more neurological thing, which is that a brand is really the way you decide 
why you're attracted to something. So for, I think of them really as files in your brain. So if you are interested in cars, for example, and you like Audi cars, for example, you will put all the things that you appreciate about Audi, most of which are invented by you, by the way, and they will send you certain signals and, and, and it will look a certain way and behave a certain way. But we make the brands that we put in our minds and the companies that want us to put them there support us by the way they behave and the products that they make and how they write and how they, all the rest of it. And, but you add a lot of, a lot of things. One very interesting little story, which is not original. Um, and that is that if you go into a supermarket that you have in your mind as a brand that you cherish and the product that you want isn't there, you blame yourself for being late. And if you go into a supermarket that you despise and that you don't hold in your brain as a brand that you favor, you'll curse them for not having stuff in stock. So, you know, you change your attitude. And if, if it's a brand that you love, you forgive it all sorts of things. And then if you don't like it for some reason or it lets you down or somebody's more attractive, you chuck it out of your mind and you put in, you replace it with another file. It's more or less how it works, Mike. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's wind back now to your childhood. Your parents were Russian. They, they came were. from St. Petersburg. Yeah. And um, you were born here in the 1930s in yeah. London. Tell me a little bit about your 33. parents. You're not quite that old. My parents, well, my father was a man with a very dominant brother. So when my father came here, his brother was already living here and was an international barrister and a very Dickensian character. I mean, he was very formal. He lived in Belsize Park. He had a waistcoat. I think they called them three-piece suits and a tie. And he was immaculately dressed until he was 98 or 99, I think he was, when he died. He was very formal, great twinkle in his eye, a great atheist, although he knew the Metropolitan who ran the Russian church here. And his daughter was a, 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 a very, very religious, uh, and she still is actually, a um, member of the Russian Orthodox Church. He despised religion. And my father was very dominated by this man, a much more modest, modest character, my father, much more aesthetic character, much more unclear who he was. And he became uh, a monitor during the war. <clears throat> That's to say he listened to um, broadcasts in Russia, translated them for the BBC or for the nation, really. And uh, after the war, he became a, a simultaneous interpreter, which was a job that I hadn't really understood what a, what a talent it took, you know, until I experienced simultaneous interpretation myself mm. it's an amazing talent mm. because they know what you're saying as you're saying it and say it in the same way in another language so he was very bright my mother on the other hand also very bright looked like greta garbo if you look if i look at pictures of her in russia sitting in a victorian dining room where her parents her father was a timber merchant or something they were quite grand she looked as if she's been retouched in by photoshop she looks like a film star. And she was a very tough piece of work, actually. So she ran my father and my stepfather while I was uh, away in boarding school. So, so it was a fairly middle class background that you came from. It you say? was, yeah, I suppose that's probably true. So you were evacuated, but um, mostly at, at boarding schools. I was in my first boarding school at when five. When you were five, yeah. yes. It was grim. 
I mean, he was he was smacked for taking. You were allowed five sweets, and if you took six, you got beaten about quite a bit. I mean, it was it was very strict. Oh, I loathed every school I went to. And you went to rather a lot. I went to probably five of them, and I ended up in Gresham's, which is a minor concentration camp. There you are at um, at Gresham Public School. Yeah, um, probably around about the age of what sixteen. Yes, ran away twice. Ran away twice. Yes. You ended up spending a year in France at around about the age of 17. Yes. You became very passionate about uh, church architecture over there. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it wasn't so much about churches, Mike. It was about massive buildings of extraordinary beauty. And for me, it was, I remember one occasion sleeping in a tent which was a triangular tent, and at one end when I woke up near Chartres, there was a cow's head looking at me, and the other end was Chartres Cathedral in the sunrise. And I've never forgotten that image, and we drove towards Chartres. Of course, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But, I mean, the, the immensity of these buildings and the significance of these buildings and the beauty and the craftsmanship in these buildings. I wasn't particularly interested in the religious aspect of these mm. buildings, but that, that, that they were standing there. I just, I'm still amazed by cathedrals, really. I think they're quite astounding, most of them. Well, when you, when you got back, that sort of, that interest sort of obviously clearly took you along to the Architectural Association yeah. School, where you, for a time, studied architecture. Um, but that didn't last very long. A couple of years I did that, and I, but I spent most of my time really in, um, in cinemas. I, I was totally, fascinated by the talent and beauty and the and the way that films move you you know that you i'm still like that really i mean i just think cinema is an extraordinary medium and architecture struck me as being a humorless activity very little wit in architecture and uh, i think humor has always been a very strong part of me and I didn't find it amongst the rather earnest <laughs> creatures who become architects. So you were really biding your time, I guess, because, you know, national service loomed large for it most did. 18-year-olds yeah. in this country. Yeah. Right up until the, the 60s, um, yeah. you had to do a statutory two years yeah. national service. And, and that's exactly what you did. Um, well, I deferred it for quite a long time. Oh, you managed to? I managed to defer it because of being a student. Yeah. And then um, I can't remember actually the technicality of it, but I got caught because I left the AA. Yeah. I met this wonderful man called Henry Elder, and uh, he asked me, what do I really want to do? Well, I didn't really know, but so I said dress design because I was fascinated by it because I was a teddy boy, actually. And so I was interested in clothes anyway. And also interested in why men's clothes weren't as interesting as women's clothes. I studied dress design and welding, which I, I just love the smell and the, and the flames and the, the metal of it. And interior design at Hammersmith, because there was a chap at the AA, Henry Elder, who was deputy principal, I think. And he, he was one of the first people who actually thought I was talented, which was quite a relief. <laughs> so I went there. Into what he sort of pinpointed the fact that you had a creative spirit. And that- he thought I was uh, obviously a, a person with creative capacity. Yeah. And, I, and in the transition between the AA and Hammersmith, I got called up and I couldn't do anything about it. So I went into the army, had a horrible time, but managed to get out. 
which is another story because I was extremely skillful in getting out. Well, when you eventually left, yeah, um, you got yourself a job at Olympia, yeah, uh, working on exhibitions. Yes, and that led to a string of sort of short-term yeah jobs, yeah, um, which it then connected on to. Uh, the world of advertising, Crawford's advertising. Crawford, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your well. Days in very quickly, Crawford's. tell you that between designing exhibition stands, where I knew I was unlike other designers designing exhibition stands, I knew that I had uh, a stronger wit, I think, probably, and and a stronger, probably, intelligence. It sounds very arrogant in the way that I did it. So I went from there and I was rejected from there. I was sacked about 10 times, but I did exhibition stands. I designed nightclubs. I designed light fittings. And I went from company to company to company pretty quickly. And being out of kilter with what the people I worked for seemed to want until I arrived at Crawford's, where a guy called Jack Foxall, who was the creative director of their bit of their business that did designing, really understood what I was trying to do. It, it, even better than I did, actually. And I spent three years there and um, began to understand the kind of designer I was going to become. I mean, he was enormously important for me because, you know, appreciation, it just lets you understand what it is you are, which if you don't have appreciation, it's very hard to know what you are. Mm. You then, I think, moved on to the BBC. Yeah, Um Working on set design. I did set design at the BBC for a year with Natasha Kroll. Right. And uh, didn't enjoy that very much. You kind of moved sort of into, whether you moved into it, but it certainly excited you, the, the graphics department. The yeah, my first graphic job was designing a cover for the Muckshifter and Spreader, uh, which enabled me to discover Cooper Black as a very sort of... What, is, what has that got to do with the BBC? Sorry. Sorry? What's that got to do with the BBC? Oh, I left the BBC. Oh, you left? Yeah, yeah. I had a three-year contract, and I found that the set design was didn't give you enough creative scope. Right. Because very frustrating, actually. So then you were freelancing after the BBC? Then I became a freelance, yeah. Okay. Uh, and 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 you were doing editorial work? Uh, I then got this wonderful job working for a group that ran magazines. And as I say, I designed the cover of Muck, Muck Shifter and Spreader and discovered Cooper Black right. and then discovered the the wonder of type, the yeah. joy, the beauty, the, the incredible variation of typefaces. And, it's, of course, it's personality, which oh. so, so a lot of... A well, lot I'm of, still completely amazed by type. Yes. And then, of course, it was metal. Yeah. And, uh, but still had been cut and it was just, I mean, type is the most amazing thing. And at the same time, you discover the miracle of a language really. And, mm. and it's, it's just, yes, it I, want, I want to go on to, yeah. to, to language and words a little bit later. But while you were, um, freelancing, yeah, you saved up enough money to, um, to buy yourself a Citroen DS. You know more about me than I do. Yeah. <laughs> and that led you, you know, your, your love of, sort of French, rather eccentric I would design. say it was chapter two of Francophilia. Yeah. Because at the AA, I spent most of my time looking at French movies. And so I wore black shirts and I smoked gulois and I, you know, I thought everything French was miraculous. And so when I saved up the money and got a DS, which I still think is the most beautiful car ever, ever produced, mm. um, it was such a joy. 
Oh, what a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful car. <laughs> there you are with your French car. A little later, you join James Main. Yes. Um, who had spotted you as a, as a bit of a talent. Yeah, I have no idea how he did that, but and, he did that. And you started uh, to get rather interested in a, in a sort of deeper approach to, as it was called then, corporate identity. Yes. And at the same time, Wally Owens joins the company. No, he came after. He came after. What happened, the story is that I joined James, and it was called Main Wolf and Partners. Right. And then Wally, James's children went to school with Wally's children. Wally was running a design company called Caps. Wally's idea of creative direction, because he wasn't a particularly creative person, was a, a guy called Ernest Hock, for whom international paper sizes seemed to be the epitome of graphic design. So he was fairly, I mean, Wally's an extremely bright guy. He was pretty much tortured by this international paper size as if that was the absolute embodiment of all graphic design. Meanwhile, I was working with James and we were doing some quite strange and interesting work. And when Wally and I met, I think we both recognized in each other a reservoir of talents which we actually lacked in ourselves. So he was wise and, and, and worldly. And, and I wasn't to do with international paper sizes. So, so we, you kind of complemented. We other. completely complemented each other, yeah. So Wolf Olins. It was main Wolf Olins. Yeah. And then James left. Okay. And then it was uh, Wally and me, really. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Wolf Olins because I guess thinking back at that time when, when Wolf Olins started, generally in the, in the design world, it was still a time of you know, modernist, clinical. Yes. You, you talked about international paper sizes, and that yes. sort of sums it up. It was yes. the clinical graphic symbols. Yes, a lot of Swiss influence. Swiss design. Gloom and all of that. Absolutely, yeah. which was said a lot more about the designers imposing a style yes. rather than embracing the problem yeah. and reflecting yeah. the, the client or their product or whatever it was. Yeah. But you at... Um, at Warfolins, you know, sort of really cut right through this. And a lot of your work at that time used animals, and you've yeah. mentioned animals quite a lot already yeah. in this interview, you know, seeing the cow yeah. and the big building and so forth. You used animals to express an organization. For, for example, you used a hummingbird for the construction company yes. purpose. You used a fox for a paint company. Yeah. You used a cockney sparrow for the London Borough of Southwark and yeah. so on. Yeah. And this kind of harps back to... I suppose, turn-of-the-century advertising, where they use creatures, not yes. necessarily in a sophisticated way as you were doing, you were invoking an idea. Well, his master's voice was a wonderful one, of course. Exactly. So yeah. it was sort of bringing a kind of humanity yeah. back yeah. Into, into design that, yeah. that had sort of been lacking for yes. probably 20 years. I yes. mean, it was... Well, I remember seeing this wonderful little piece of wrapping around a suite, which was a, a mint, and it was called Fox's Glacier Mint, and it had a bear on it. And I thought, you know, this is not only surreal, it's beautiful and it's entertaining and it's, uh, and it makes you want to eat the glacier mints. I mean, the idea of calling them glacier mints was wonderful anyway. I was just interested. I think, Mike, we were populists and our competitors were elitists, probably. Yeah. yeah. And that was a lot of commercial design, which was crap. Yes. But of the, of the design that you, you, you took seriously. There was elitist design, which was all about purity and classic. And I don't know. I don't know how to describe it because I don't quite know what it is. But I always respected it. Yeah. But we were about populist design and, and 
yeah, we were populists. I want to talk a little bit about how you actually work, because I think linking it back to your time in advertising at Crawford's, it seems to me that you developed more like an advertising art director yeah. in that at that time, designers tended to be self-contained people. Yeah. They would do everything themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm thinking of the Alan Fletchers, the no. David Gentlemans, who would be a kind of one-stop, yeah. you know. Yeah. You, on the other hand, had always worked collaboratively, or yeah. you were more of a, I, I guess, a, a creative conductor, or a, yeah. you, know, you, you pulled elements together. You would have a thought process, and yeah. you would bring others in to uh, extend the idea. Yeah. And you seem to have worked that way, ever since it's true a kind of creative conductor and also you unusually i think for designers you also had a love of words and we talked a little bit yeah. earlier about yeah. words yeah very much in the in the spirit of say bill burnback uh, yeah. the american copywriter who brought wit into advertising yeah. copywriting with everyday speech yeah. and i know that that's something that you even now are always trying to get into yeah. copy and we'll talk about that a little later so there you are at wolf Olin's. the company prospers expands and you travel a lot yeah a lot all over the place in the u.s in particular yeah and while you were in the u.s you got involved with um, an organization called the erhard oh, yes, training yes, 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 which yes, is yes. um a yeah. kind of self-discovery cult it was a yes. cult at the time there was a lot of this around yeah um and and i read that you said that the experience actually change your life so maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about that and yes. what you meant by that um i think what i meant by that was that i really discovered who i was through that and it was an extraordinary i, I don't think it was a cult by the way i think it was just an extraordinarily well designed course really introducing you to the to the nowness of now if you like and to the you-ness of you and i realized that there was a an actor version of me, which was uh, something that I used quite a lot, but there was also an authentic me within that. And um, during these two weekends, I was able to come to terms with who I really was, I think. And it was an extraordinary, extraordinary Am experience. I right in thinking that th this particular setup, which EST for short, yeah. is a kind of three-day it was affair. then. It was a two two weekend of where you're kind of locked into a room. No. You can't pee and all that sort no, of no, stuff. No, 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 no. That's not right. That's what no. I read. Uh, no. I read that it. No, no, no. Uh, what there was was if people get uncomfortable, the first resort is probably to go go out of the room and take a leak or something. So what they would say to you is, if unless you've got a really medical reason to get up and leave the room, which of course if you have, you can. But if you're just feeling uncomfortable and want to go and leave the room, it's probably not a good idea because you're going to disturb everybody. So you were encouraged not to get up and leave because some of these processes were quite deep. It was a good thing that you just sat there and and, and uh, watched other people go through things and go through things yourself. But it was not, it was nothing weird about it. It was uh, a mixture of bits of psychology, bits of uh, cobbled together stuff. But I found it incredibly useful mm. and i still you know thank whoever it is the universe or whatever that i did it because it uh it just let me understand much more about who i was and how i related to other people and what was going on okay so you you, you then have this new kind of yeah. force energy whatever you want yeah. to call it. you come back to all fillings and you yeah. how does it affect your relationship there do you put any of that thinking it into it, practice it, 
Well, I think I did, but I think I may have been a bit of a zealot because it was such a, a transformation for me that I think it probably was irritating to some people because I, I went through, I suppose, years of therapy in two weekends. And so I came back more myself than I'd been, as far as I was concerned, for them, a slightly different person to the one they thought I was. So I was more penetrating in a sense about what I was doing and what we were doing. I was more critical of our habits. I was more concerned that our work was of value beyond just the commercial value of what it was purporting to do. It made me more, it made me deeper and it stayed with me actually till today. You know, I'm, I'm as interested in why people run their businesses and what the businesses are about as I am in how they look really. And that started then. And, uh, I had to carry people with me and some I did and some I didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, towards the, the early nineties, you parted company. Yeah. With Warford. Yes. Was that a difficult thing to do? Um, it was. It was a very difficult thing to do. And I think basically, you know, when something of that sort of order happens to anyone, you you try and look at yourself through the telescope at which they're looking at you. And I think what happened is that they were, when I say they, my three co-directors, were trying to focus the business down into what it did that created an effective business. I was continuing to open it out into what it needed to be to be an effective business from the way I saw it. So I think they were centripetal in their attitude. I was centrifugal. Right. And they found me difficult in relation to what they were doing. And to be honest, I was, because they were evolving into a kind of process. Stage one, stage two, stage three, out the door. I was evolving into what are we doing? Why does it work? Why doesn't it work? What is it about it? And I was always dissatisfied with anything that we've arrived at as a way of working. I always thought, no, once we're stuck with this, we're stuck with that. We've got to move on. Mm. And I think I must have been very tiring for people. Mm. I think I still am quite Interesting you should say that because the very thing you sort of rejected when you started was this looking for a, a different way of yeah. expressing things yeah. away from the structured yeah. Swiss in a box yeah. sort of style. So that seemed to be consistent with you. So after you leave Wolf-Olins, you you have a series of jobs. I mean, it starts with uh, you formed the consortium, which is yeah. kind of loose creative collective yeah. Yeah. that lasted for a yeah, that was, sure I mean, it was very interesting, actually. It didn't need to last longer than it lasted. But it was, uh, I mean, I think this thing of, you know, building a company and sticking with it forever sure. is one way of living. But I think it's like, you know, moving from one country to another is another way of living. And I, I just moved from one situation to another situation to another situation. Yes, so you went to Addison? I, um, yeah, Addison was very interesting. Tell me a little bit about Addison, because this well, was at a time when I think within the you know design fraternity, there were lots of companies being bought up by agencies or yes. going on the unlisted yes. stock market. And yes. it, it was all becoming business, business yeah. very much business. Yes. And that, in a way, if, I don't, if you don't mind me going back for a moment, to me, the two most creative things that I think I made happen in Wolf Olin's I think that our food 
which was never designed to show off, but was designed to show, look, you can choose. I think in many ways our food was more creative than our work. And there was one thing which I'm most proud of when I look back at it, was we gave a Christmas party. We used to have Christmas parties where clients used to come with a lot of alcohol, typical corporate business party, pretty repugnant, actually. (laughs) And I thought, well, the spirit of Christmas, what can we do that's different? And I went to Camden and we got 30 young kids, six, seven, eight, who had nowhere to go for Christmas. And we got got 30 of those. We got 30 elderly people who were living on their own, nowhere to go for Christmas. Camden were fantastic. They produced these people. We had 60 people, um, a mixture of seven, eight, nine-year-olds and 75, 80 to 90-year-olds. And the company spent two weeks making gifts. We had this great central staircase. We had this wonderful guy called Uncle Bob, who was our carpenter. It was a lovely, lovely Bob Mayo, Irishman, beautiful, lovely guy. We dressed him up as Santa. We got snow machine. We had wonderful Christmas carols. And Uncle Bob came down this central atrium with the sack over his shoulder with Christmas carols and snow falling. And for me, that was as good a Christmas as I, it was like something when I was six or seven. Mm-hmm. To me, that was one of the most successful things we ever did. It was just for us and it was for those 60 people. But if I try and remember what did we do that was valuable to other human beings, that was one of the high points for me. And of course, it wasn't for them in retrospect, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, it was just wonderful. And when I went to Addison, I tried to get Paula Pryke to be our reception area with the flower shop. Mm-hmm. But I then immediately bumped into the corporate, the corporate aspect of Addison, which, I mean, on the one hand, I have to thank them because they said to me, use this company as a palette, paint on it, lead this company. And I had a few years there where we went from nothing to, I think, pretty much challenging Wolf Erlins. We became quite a vigorous company and then it lost its way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I left. You, you in '92, you took over from Dick Guyatt um, as the external design advisor to W. H. Smith. I did. A, yeah, if I remember rightly, was a very, um, very pleasurable time. Oh, that was a ten you. years of sheer joy. Because you had a client who recognised yeah. what design yeah. could do and the importance well, of design. Yes, absolutely. And I think the relationship between design and client is often undervalued. Yeah. Well, Simon Hornby was. And, and Malcolm Field, but Simon Hornby in particular, he was at the most amazing client because he understood noise. He understood language. He, you know, we, I had a private language with him. He just, he noticed everything and he knew the value of everything in even the most trivial things. Mm. He was, he was, I mean, I think without that 10 years with him, I wouldn't be what I am today. I mean, he was, uh, whatever it is I am today, but he, he was, um, extraordinary partner and he was running a very successful business mm. so for me it was uh, it was probably the peak of my educational experiences really mm. he was a wonderful teacher it was a very i mean a very good time for wh smith yeah pleasure to visit their stores you must be very depressed when you go into a w oh. smith today oh it's, it's, it's uh, very sad all, all of that is gone the whole very sad yeah you then became non-executive at Newell and Sorrow, yes, and, and help them along with their yeah. and influence mostly. And I think one of your and one of the things that's clearly uh, very much your influence was Nice Day, yes, Nice Day products. Charlie Barsati, the cartoonist, the yeah. little dog, and another little animal pops up. And then eventually, in uh, the late nineties, you start yet another company, the Fourth Room. 
Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, around about that time, I, I had interviewed you and I remember you saying, I think you were four years into that company and you were saying that um, that company, you described it as the first real radical company and you were very excited yeah. about what was about to yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, what happened a little later is it it just it got, was, it, sort um, of disappeared. What happened? Well, it was a fantasy, really. And it was a glorious fantasy. It was like... Um, a chapter in one's life you know it was uh it, it was uh it was great fun we had some we did some wonderful work but it wasn't a sensible business it was a great <laughs> idea and it was a rotten business really it didn't, didn't work as a business i think yeah if i remember the idea was that you didn't actually do any of the creative work it yeah. was really thinking and bringing yeah. others in so yeah. it was a sort of your earlier thinking sort of made it, into a company yeah I suppose so, but it was. And it was, Wendy Gordon was there, who's a wonderful. I mean, she's the queen of of, uh, of qualitative research, and she's still a, a, a wonderful leader in her field. But you know, she'd run companies and didn't want to run it. I'd kind of led companies and didn't want to lead it. And so um, the people who did lead it didn't. Didn't and we thought well that was going to be fine. We'd be able to have a wonderful time doing what we're good at, but it didn't quite work out that way. But it was fun. Well, after obviously after that um, company faded away, you you've <laughs> ever since that time you've very much operated under your own name, helping organisations yes. express themselves. Yeah, and I think going back to where we opened up, which was what you know, what is branding? The sort of relationships I think you have with organizations or certainly the ones that i think you you try to engender um is an honesty in reflecting what an organization is and i think that to do that it takes a lot of bravery on the part of the client it does um, because so many clients or so many organizations and i'm thinking of you know the thatching years where companies were dressed up basically Yeah, yeah, yeah you know to sell off well they're just there to grow yeah yeah so how have you found, you know, in, uh, in the last decade, your working relationship with, with uh, various clients that you've yeah. helped? Has okay. it been difficult? Have you found those sort of well, clients that would, are willing to reveal themselves? And Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I've had successes and failures, you know, and some of the successes are due to the fact that the companies were willing and interested and uh, questioning about why they're there. You see, the, the truth, Mike, is that, I never work for organizations. I work for individual people. And now I'm beginning to start to work with groups of people, which is completely new for me. And I'm really enjoying it. But it, it's the same thing, though. You you work with the human being. You don't work with the institution. Institutions shut down at night. The in, buildings are empty. Offices are empty. Businesses stop. Most of them. Some have shifts that go on and some are in different time zones and all the rest of it. And so, you know, some very big companies around the world, there's something happening all the time. But on the whole... It's the people that count. Why are the people there? And so often you find people in companies who don't really know what the companies are for, why they exist. It's just a job. And you don't want to belittle people for for that. Of course you don't, because we all work for different reasons. But on the whole, when you're dealing with people who lead significant enterprises, you want to feel they know the value that they bring to the world and not just the value that they bring to themselves. And so on the whole, come back to centripetal, centrifugal. If there is a a certain amount of centrifugal energy in a company, then I can be very useful to them. If they're entirely centripetal, 
then they probably don't need to work with somebody like me. You've now, I mean, we're coming to the end of this to kind of round things up a little. You're, you're, you're now in your 70s. Yeah. <coughs> You've had a career spanning, what, over 50 years. But most people would be winding down or even retired by now. You carry on. Why is my first question. <laughs> uh, why carry on, you know, when you, I guess, you could you could change your life and quietly write or reflect on all those years of experience? Well, you know what? For me, the most important thing in life is to be useful, really, and to be loving. But if I don't find that I'm being useful or doing something of value to other people, I get... Um, scared you know i get i get um i don't like to feel useless i don't like to feel i'm not doing something that helps other people in some way and so you know i do quite a lot of stuff which i hope is helpful which is not business like it's not rewarded financially but i just i'm passionate about it i love what design is like you know well, let's okay let's dwell on that a little bit in terms of design so what issues concern you about Design in the 21st century. So I'll take, let's take one topic. So yeah. What about, okay, design and the aging population? Yeah. Well, that concerns me a lot. You know, when you know that what we call dementia, that concerns me that it's called dementia. You know, what a ridiculous name. It makes young people think that older people are mad. Dementia, demented. It's, it's no, it's no coincidence that that name has happened. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those names like spastic or educationally subnormal, which is inappropriate, inaccurate and stupid. How do you change a name like that? And I know professors of neurology in universities around the place who always say to me, Oh God, it is a dreadful name. How are we going to change it? I don't know how we're going to change it. But when I hear that there are more people suffering from these neurological genet- de- degenerative diseases than heart attacks and cancer and strokes put together and we're in denial about it i get very exercised about it and especially as i'm now in the generation of people that are approaching the end of their lives you know i mean i don't know how long i'm going to live and i see how we're treated and how you know old people in care homes are treated i just i just cannot believe you know i know plenty of people in the uk who will say, how can they stone women for adultery? And we will be appalled by it. And of course, it's utterly unacceptable, totally appalling, and has to be changed. But we're doing terrible things too. We're doing terrible things to people who we don't want in our homes anymore, who are old people who go into care homes, where equally appalling things happen, Mm -hmm. actually. So our tolerance of cruelty, of callousness, of carelessness is extraordinarily high and I feel driven in a way to make a noise about that but to make a practical noise about that to try and change it you talked a little bit there at the beginning <laughs> dementia language which is something that I know you, yeah yeah you corporate language corporate gobbled yeah the hospital language medical yeah. language. which I remember you saying a long time ago why can't they call cancer cancer rather than oncology, oncology which yeah. is kind of like a foreign language yeah Obviously, the medical profession and the legal profession both suffer from the same yeah. thing, which yeah. is impenetrable language yeah. to yeah. keep people out yeah. so that they don't understand. Yeah. And I know that that's something that's exercised that you a lot. totally obsesses me. I mean, I just, I just find it so baffling. You know, why, why are people called oncologists? Why is it called renal? Why, are they, why, why do, when you go to the hospital, you're confronted with all this stuff? 
I mean, there's a very interesting thing about hospitals. They don't ask you what you want to be called. They don't ask you, give us a sentence that if you're going to be an inpatient for more than three or four days, what can we know about you? So, in fact, when a doctor walks around a hospital ward, he'll probably refer to the patients by the name of what, what's wrong with them. Because there's a couple of coronaries there. There's a, um, a spina bifida. I don't remember these awful medical sure. names. There's a emphysema. There's two emphysemas. But if it said, I'm a cab driver and I've been driving a cab for 30 years or I love playing snooker or something and my name is Ted so-and-so. And equally, I'd like to see what the doctors call. I mean, can't be difficult to put labels on people. It is extraordinary that even t- today in the 21st century, the so-called bedside manner is still not top no, of the list. It's ridiculous. You hear, you know, consultants having to go to lessons to be able to talk to their patients because they've never had to do that sort of thing. Or, or to cope with someone who burst into tears. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I know there are lots of other things that drive you mad. Dishonesty, <laughs> pomposity, well, bad service. drive me mad. They're just jobs to be done, Mike. So tell me now, in terms of you as a designer today, yeah. what is it that what is it that you? I'm a client. What do you bring to what the, I bring to you? Yeah, what would you bring to me? Well, what I'll bring to you, I think, is I will reconnect you with why you're in the business you're in. You may have forgotten. You may have got lazy about it. So I will try and find out what it was that drove you to do what you do and what you want to be remembered for. What, Why are you in this business? And when we wake that up again, we then say, well, how do you express yourself in a way that people will know that that's why you're in that business? How do we connect with the impression you want to give other people with who you are and why you're doing it? So in the end, it's actually about coherence. It's about the way that you express yourself will reveal who you are rather than tell some sort of story that's been built up by other people. And that's what I think I try to do. We're now sort of delivering design, to use a kind of corporate phrase, yeah, in a much... Yeah, we, could, we even talk about delivering well, visions. Visions, which, platforms, whatever. Yeah. But we're, we're living in a, in a dramatically different era from yeah. when you started way back when yeah. everything was yeah. analog. Yeah. I mean, everything is now digital, yeah. you know, design is... Everything's online. Everything's online. You know, people <laughs> don't actually see one another much anymore. It can all be sent yeah. uh, via the internet, via PDFs and so forth. But thinking is still the most important thing. You know, it's the thought, not yeah. the execution, although the execution yeah. is clearly important. Yeah. So I'm thinking about younger designers now getting into a very overcrowded business, yeah. increasingly so. Do you have any thoughts? I do, actually. And, and the main thought I have is don't think that as design companies where designers should necessarily be. Because if you're interested in creativity and you are creative and you can see and you have got curiosity and you do appreciate things and you have got imagination, take it anywhere. Go and work in a, any company. You know, go and bring it to anyone who will listen to you. Go and start a shoe shop. Go and work. I mean, it's not the design company is not the only place to be a designer. In fact, it's actually in some ways rather a constraining place to be a designer. Go and be a designer somewhere where they want a designer. Well, that's a great thought. <laughs> Michael Wolf, thank you. Well, thank you.